With only a week left in the Atlantic League season, and only 48 hours left in the Can-Am League season, we're going to break it all down here. So get ready to dig deeper and get jacked on this episode of the Indie Ball Report Podcast. Alright, we're back. Episode number 29. Again, another solo show. But that's not going to slow us down at all. We're going to break down, as you may have guessed from the intro, the Atlantic League first. Then we're going to get into the actual Can-Am League playoffs, which Game 3 is tonight. And this will hopefully be up by the time... Or not Game 3. Game 4 is tonight. Game 3 was last night. And hopefully this episode will be up in time for Game 4. Or if not, you'll be able to listen to it on your way back from the stadium, where we'll either have a tied at two apiece going to Game 5, or a New Jersey Jackals victory for the first time in the Can-Am League. However, there is other uh, articles of news to cover, not only in the Can-Am League world, but also in the American Association and Frontier League. So we're going to kind of cover all that stuff really quickly in the beginning, so that way we could just put a headlong charge into the Can-Am for the last, hopefully, half hour of the show. So let's kind of get the uh, smaller news items out of the way early on here, and then we can shift over to that Atlantic League and Can-Am focus. First off, we just want to go and update one story that we've been following. Uh, the Kansas City T-Bones, they got an extension for 30 days on their lease agreement. There was a 50k payment made earlier in the week. Part of it was paid by the American Association, and uh, they're looking forward to trying to get the T-Bones to stay there in Kansas City. That's been uh, a little bit of a change in language before just keeping American Association Baseball there, which obviously the inference is for the T-Bones to be that American Association team. Now they are explicitly saying that. However, they still owe over $700,000 in debt. Is really just more of a good faith payment, or at least showing to the unified government of Kansas City, we're trying here. We're doing our best here. We're trying to get this team sold. And quite frankly, it's going at a slow pace, but just give us time. If you can give us some time, we got parties interested in it. We just need to uh, get the deal closed. Just a couple of interesting quotes from that. Uh, Doug Bach, the city admin, said that the stadium is a community asset and wants to keep baseball there because it helps out the community. Josh Schwab, the commissioner of the American Association, he said it's a good reinforcement of a mutual commitment. Basically, what I said to make that it's a good faith payment showing that both parties here are interested in keeping baseball in Kansas City. Really, all three, if you include the team, everybody's on the same page trying to work towards the same thing, but they all have different things and criteria that need to be met for that. Um, Outside of that, there's not really terribly much new. The new eviction date will be October 13th at 5 p.m. And as for the T-Bones themselves, their season ended few days ago when the Sioux City Explorers defeated them in the postseason. For all we know, that may have been the last game in Kansas City history. However, if they can find the buyer, I doubt it. But who knows, really, at this point, it's going to be really hard to find someone willing to take on uh, $700,000 in debt because that, that's really looking like a non-negotiable point at this stage in developments here. I don't see the unified government uh, giving them a reprieve on that debt or restructuring it even. They've already done a lot with the team here, and I, I kind of get the general sense that the whole city itself is getting rather fed up with this situation and just wants it resolved one way or the other, despite what the public comments are. 
we'll have to see how that turns out. We're going to keep monitoring it, and hopefully the situation gets ramped up fairly soon. In the coming weeks, we'll have that resolution. So we'll keep you up to date on that. However, that is just uh, what we know now on the debunk situation. Outside of Can-Am and Atlantic League news, uh, tonight at 6 o'clock Central Standard Time will be the first pitch of the final game of the River City Rascals. Uh, I understand we don't really have that much of a following out in Missouri, specifically in that River City area, which I believe is not terribly far from St. Louis. However, I could be wrong there. Uh, I know there's not a large following there. However, uh, if you are there and you are listening to this in time for that first pitch or even close enough to it, I, I do encourage you to go out to uh, that ballpark. It will mean a lot to those that have worked on the team that for many years they've been there, for the roughly 21 years they've been there. It'll mean a lot to them. It'll mean a lot to the players. It just is a sign that the community is not giving up on baseball there, too. It also helps for future future groups that want to bring baseball back to uh, Car Shield Field. It shows that, hey, like, the community is active. They do want baseball. And hopefully in the future that we will be able to bring back baseball to this wonderful community. However, uh, as of right now, it's just not working out. So hopefully... Y'all are able to show up. If not, that's the way it is. Uh, Frontier League games, I believe, are streamed on their website, so you can just go there and watch it. just want to make that point made that they are playing for their championship. They're actually in a similar position to the Jackals right now. They're up 2-1 and need one more win to close it out. So hopefully they can get that tonight. At the very least, send off their fans and the team itself with a championship. We're going to shift now to the Atlantic League here and talk about their kind of playoff race here. There's not too much to talk about, but we do feel need to cover it. The Long Island Ducks were on a torrent pace this week, winning 12 in a row. Yeah, the streak extends all the way back from two weeks ago, and they finally came to an end when York beat them. They broke two games from them, and then uh, Southern Maryland came to town, or the Ducks went to them, and in any event, uh, the streak kind of snapped. Now they are starting a new one after getting a win last night against Southern Maryland. The Ducks have basically reaffirmed that they are the class of this league. Now, granted, they didn't beat the best teams in this uh, period. They took games from uh, Somerset, Lancaster, two games from York, and they swept uh, Sugarland in that time. But even still, winning 12 in a row is a very difficult thing to do. And it's uh, there's a team to beat now. Uh, I think we all kind of knew that coming into the season, that Long Island again would be that team to watch for. Uh, we thought it was going to be more of a Somerset deal here, which uh, we'll get to them in a minute. Possibly for the final time this year, we'll spend heavy time on Somerset, but they've just not shown up in the second half. They kind of died out after that first half rush, and uh, the door is kind of open now for that final playoff spot that's going to be, that's going to be vacated once uh, Long Island wins their second divisional crown. It's going to be a matter of will it be High Point or will it be New Britain that takes that wild card spot that's going to be opened up here. Being that now we know York's going to be taking that other division. York has a magic number of five, I believe, at the moment. York can basically clinch it if Sugarland continues to falter in New Britain or if they just continue on their hot pace. It seems like they are destined now to take this division. Uh, Sugarland, I don't think, cares particularly much, seeing as they're already in. So really, it's can New Britain make up the roughly four and a half games to swipe out from underneath the uh, Ducks, which I think at this point, New Britain's kind of in the position of too little, too late. 
they did the same thing in the first half, and uh, unfortunately, they just weren't able to. Uh, well, they just weren't able to do enough in the time period they had. So, good on New Britain for making a push. They really do need to win against uh, Sugarland this weekend. Just really sweep everything. They do play a doubleheader today, but game one does count for the first half standing, so it doesn't particularly matter that much. So I would almost treat that game as a uh, let's use the bench, let's let's kind of make that a uh, just throw whatever out game because it doesn't really matter at least at this point. And if you do that, then what you can kind of get away with doing at least is then running out your your talented lineup, your bullpen guys your A-list starters for that second game that really is going to make a difference in the standings. So that will be something to watch over there. Southern Maryland's nearly dead in the water at this stage. They're all but officially dead. Their bullpen has really stepped it up the second half and turned into just an elite force. I believe there was something like 23 innings they've went without allowing an earned run, which is just astronomically good. It's quite outstanding for them, especially in an age of baseball that's dominated by the long ball and by scoring runs and just a heavy offensive game now, to go 23 innings without allowing an earned run for a bullpen is just, it's tremendous. I mean, I normally don't like to make the comparisons to the major leagues here, but if you look at the major leagues this season, it, bullpens have been struggling across the board, and to see a bullpen do this good is just, uh, it's outstanding. You like to see that, and I just wanted to kind of make a note of them. Oh, and also Lancasters are officially first dead team. Uh, they are officially eliminated from playoff contention. Uh, there's a couple more, that, like I said, that will be joining them fairly soon. Somerset will be joining them soon. Southern Maryland will be joining them soon. Uh, really, the only four teams that are not going to be uh, joining anytime soon are going to be York, uh, Sugarland, Long Island, and one of High Point or New Britain. Those are really for five. They're still there. New Britain shouldn't do too much. Like I said, I think they're kind of running out of time by and large. So they'll be interesting to watch with them. However, uh, you never know. Let's just kind of spend a minute now just kind of breaking down the Patriots' turn of events as of late. And then we can jump right into the Can-Am League, which is just had a tremendous series there. Uh, Patriot baseball really quickly is... They've just kind of fallen apart. They, they've they had moments in the second half where you go, okay, this is a really good team. It was just a rough stretch. And then they go right back into the dumps. It seems like they're very much struggling to get that kind of consistency that you need in order to win in this league. And they're just... When the bullpen does good, the starters don't, and the bats don't show up. When the bats show up, the pitching falters. When everything else is going good, there's a fielding mistake or a boneheaded play. It just seems like it's bad luck after bad luck after just just nothing going their way. I mean, sure, they got Mike Antonini back. They've added a couple other pieces throughout this kind of second half here to try and make a desperate clawing play at it. But uh, it's nothing's really been going their way the second half. And I, I really chalk it up to the way they built their team. I mean, we're going to talk about later on in the show how much pitching has made a difference in the Can-Am series. And I hate to keep bringing that up when we're talking Atlantic League, but it's a beautiful comparison here. The Can-Am, you saw how important good pitching is, because when you don't have it, 12 runs go on the board. Conversely, though, we're seeing how important batting is in the Atlantic League. Somerset made the decision very early on in the year to build around pitching. And for the first half of the year, when they had Kubiak, when they had Oberholzer, O'Sullivan, Dormady, and Holmberg as your fifth, 
it worked good, because all those guys you knew you were getting at least five innings out of. Holmberg being the one guy that you were probably going to use as a bullpen, as a bullpen day. And then when you went to that bullpen, you had a fairly solid core of guys there. Uh, Shearshire for the little bit that he was here. Antonini being the main guy. Nathan Rowe, another guy. These guys were very dominant in that effort. Now you lost Oberholzer, you lost Ormady, you've lost Kobiak, who's by far the largest uh, loss of the group. You've lost Antony, but now gained him back since. And Shearshaw, you've also lost. It's been a really tough go of it. And when you never really supplemented them with quality bats, it's been a major problem. It's been able to see. Uh, for a while, Ramon Flores was your guy, but then when he got his contract purchased by the Twins, you kind of lost your full offense. I mean, you got a little bit of a reprieve when Paredes and Espinal figured out their visa situation. But that only helps you so much when they're the only guys doing anything. And now Paredes has kind of been oft hurt now. And Espinal's been cooling off a lot. Kenger's been doing the best he can, but he's only one guy. And outside of that, who else really has had consistent offense? Bands is really nobody. The only guy that really can make a kind of a case for him, at least in my mind, is a guy like Alfredo Rodriguez. But even then, he really has not been the model of consistency for the Patriots so far this year. And it's just, it's disappointing to see that, because you saw a team that had a lot of potential that really was going to make a push, it seemed like, in that first half, and just don't kind of watch them disintegrate in front of your eyes. It's really been kind of disappointing to see that. Just as being a fan of the game, it's just extremely disappointing to see something like that. Uh, you, it could have been a very fun matchup to see again. Uh, Long Island and uh, Somerset go at it mano y mano and duke it out for that divisional right to be like, yeah, we're the best in this division, and then to fight for that uh, again, another Atlantic League championship. And now we're not going to get to see that being that. Uh, they just couldn't perform. Instead now, though, we do have other stories. We do get to see High Point that's came out of really nowhere. I thought this hot kind of tangent they were going on back when the season first started, way back in April and May, was just going to be that, just a hot start, and then they die down. But they have not died down. I think that's a testament to Jamie Keefe. He's done a terrific job managing the club. I hope to see them in the postseason. I always like to see kind of the New Britons and the Southern Marylands there because, you know, they're... They're not exactly the most explosive markets. They're kind of different a bit, and it's always like to see, you always like to see kind of those minor teams just jump out of nowhere and snatch one championship, and I think it would really help those fan bases out and help the teams kind of draw more, which, if you look at the attendance-wise, they definitely could use. But uh, to see High Point get that would be very fun. It'd be nice to see an expansion team there, to see new faces, and to have a high a uh, high point North Carolina versus like Sugarland Texas final would be very interesting to see, and I think it would be a testament to show how far the Atlantic League has grown in their roughly 20-year history. It's that they went from teams that were essentially all in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, this whole general Northeast corridor region, to see them grown from just those small like five to eight teams to now go to really a continental-type game where you have a team in Texas, you have a team in North Carolina, you have a team in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, all over the place competing. And it would just be 
it'd be a nice testament to that to show that you can still grow the game even at this level. Interesting uh, fight to the finish here. We'll do more of a full breakdown of the Atlantic League next week when uh, the Can-Am League's all well and done. Uh, next week's going to be kind of more of a wrap-up and a preview week. So I'd look forward to that. I uh, just kind of wanted to put a bow on the uh, Patriot season. That's essentially all but dead at this point. Uh, two more losses to high point, and they'll be done officially. So I really want to jump in now to the Can-Am League final, which I have affectionately started dubbing as the Garden State Classic, which I'm desperately trying to make a thing, which unfortunately just does not seem to have caught on. However, I'm going to continue to refer to this as the Garden State Classic until it does catch on. So, let's dive now into this final. We've already had three games played in the Garden State Classic between your Sussex County Miners and your New Jersey Jackals, two teams that have had kind of up and down seasons in their own regards, all ups for the uh, Miners and lots of ups and downs for the Jackals. However, we're going to kind of break down both of their seasons, recap everything they've done so far to this point in the year, and then kind of break down each of the games, give you a preview for Game 4 tonight, and what I'd expect to see if there is a Game 5, and all that good stuff. Miners finished 61-33, and first in the Can-Am League, back-to-back -back regular season champions with 60 wins, first time that has happened. Since the 2011-2012 Quebec Capitals, who also conveniently won those league championships in those respective years. They averaged 1,688 people per game for the Miners, an upgrade from last year. A small boost, but a boost nonetheless. And they are looking to become the first repeat champions of the Can-Am League since the Quebec Capitals dynasty in 2013. Uh, you want to look at the Miners staff so far, pitching-wise, they've had seven guys that qualify and are still on the team with uh, ERAs under four. Four of them being starters. Those guys would be Frank Duncan. He threw 132 and two-thirds innings with a 3.05 ERA. My mistake there. Jeff Thompson threw 117 and a third innings, 3.68 ERA. 87.2 innings for Tom Burns, a 3.29 ERA. And Andrew Gist, who threw 86 innings, and had 2.62 ERA. So a very stellar, stellar, stellar season for all of those guys. Mainly all of them are starters. Gist came out of the bullpen a handful of times. I believe Burns came out once or twice. Uh, Jeff Thompson also had a couple of relief appearances. Duncan being an exclusive starter, but being that he was, at least in my opinion, the second best pitcher in this league this past year, makes a lot of sense. The other three guys with ERAs below four would be your three relievers, Corey Jones, mainly a long man. He was injured for part of the year, hence he only pitched uh, 48 innings. A 3.56 ERA setup man, Jose Jose, or Jose Squared if you prefer, had a 1.58 ERA in just under 56 or 46 innings by mistake. And Ryan Newell in just 36 innings had a 1.75 ERA. But if you know, and as you do know, he is a closer, so not terribly surprising he had that limited amount of action. All in all, they have been a very dominant pitching team. That has been their MO, and it plays very well to their stadium. It's a stadium that eats up a lot. Skylands, obviously, being built for affiliated ball back in, I believe it was 94. It's got a deeper dimension. It's a much harder field to hit home runs out of. Even at the most shallow parts, it's still about 330 at the corners. 
and I believe about 392 to center field. So you're not really going to be seeing a lot of massive home run hitters. If you see a 10 home run guy in that, that plays half their games in Skylands, it really means more like 16 or 17, as I'm sure they, they hit plenty that went to the track. Uh, pitching is the backbone of this team, just straight out. You have other guys like Kevin Grandel, um, being the most notable of them, that are also stellar relievers. They just had a few more oh, bad outings. So, so far to this point, that pitching is held true. The bullpen has pitched extremely well. And that's how you're going to win ball games. And to this point, they've, they've looked like the better team. Just outright. Uh, not really many mental mistakes. They're not really beating themselves too often. Uh, really, the, really, the only time I can say they beat themselves was game one with that wild pitch. But even still, uh, those happen. By and large, the pitching of this team has been very dominant. And that's something to look to continue going forward. Alright, as for the batters here, they've also had some very solid batters. Uh, the most notable four would be Trey Hare, uh, 324, 8 home runs, and an OBP or OPS of 397. Uh, Brizuela, 302, 9 home runs, 913. Artie Siriaco, 328, 9 home runs, and 854 OPS. Uh, those guys are all the ones you kind of expect to see there. Solid guys all the way around. Uh, second baseman, outfielder, and then first baseman, respectively. Uh, Siriaco, he is a long ball header. Um, he had, he does have the highest average of all those guys I listed here, but I really don't see him as much of an average hitter. Uh, you kind of see that with his, uh, on base and slugging percentage there. He doesn't really draw walks. He really is more of a two outcome guy in my mind. He's either going to hit the ball down the line, it's going to be a double, or a home run, or it's going to be an out. He really doesn't do a lot of taking pitches and working account. That's something that does work against him an awful lot. And then if you compare that to a guy like Trey Hare, who knows how to work account, he knows how to get on base, it's a, it's a major difference maker. So I would pay attention to that. I would look for Trey Hare to kind of top out more, because he's had an awful quiet series so far, not really doing terribly much. Uh, Brizuela, too, I think his biggest problem uh, to this point in the series, as I know I kind of shift gears here from recapping to the actual series itself, he's kind of been uh, letting the count and letting the umps get to him a bit, and he needs to kind of work that out a little bit there, but he's been a very good guy so far in the series. And he was very good in the season as well. Now, for the guy that I didn't mention that's number four on this, uh, Nick Zaharian is the guy. <laughs> I know you're thinking, really, he's the fourth best batter on this team, but yeah, uh, 295, two home runs, 783 OPS. By and large, he was a bench guy. And being a bench guy and putting up those numbers is very good. I kind of include him as a top four batter because he knows how to hit in the clutch situation. And I kind of expect to see Bobby Jones, particularly tonight, but just kind of in general, use him more in that capacity to get him kind of in the game here. If you're just not getting the the bats going, and he seems like the perfect kind of guy to try and to use to get that bat going, to get the game turned in your direction. So I kind of pay attention to Nick Zahari, and he's kind of got to watch for, at least in my mind. Uh, now recapping the postseason to this point. Uh, the Myers defeated the Rockland Boulders three games to one to advance to the league championship series. Game one, they took Frank Duncan, put on a dominant performance, a 10-3 victory. Game two, it flipped. Uh, Tom Burns kind of had a bad start right out of the gate. Never really recovered from that, and it, it showed. 
Uh, 3-11 to 11 was your final score. Miners on the losing end of that one. It really was not a good go. It was not a good game for him, and he looked to rebound in his next start. Game 3 was then rained out and pushed back one day. And, game, and then eventually, when it was played on Saturday as opposed to Friday, Andrew Gish threw a gem, 7 innings of 7 strikeout and 2 run ball. Not a single walk issued. He got the win as the Miners rolled on to win 6-2. to two. They showed that they were ready to come to play. They were able to bounce back from a really big loss. And they were all locked in going to Game 4 on Sunday when they took it 8-4. to four. They, uh, Paladino, the winner on that one, or at least the winning pitcher on that end. Again, another good start from him. Rockland threatened a couple times, but as you probably saw on Center, your local news, or just making its way around social media, uh, Breland Alvindova came with a couple of very big catches in that game. That kept that game as close as it was and prevented a game five, in my mind. Although, that second catch, it really looks like it hit off the wall and caught it off the wall. I gotta say that much, but regardless, it wasn't, or it wasn't ruled that way, and it was a very good catch for him. He went and just, he did everything he could, and it showed. We look at the key players in that semifinal now. Audi Siriaco being a major guy, two home runs, batting 333, and he actually stole a base there for him. So a solid performance so far. He's kind of backing up that he hits for uh, power, not average, right there. Uh, Almendova, great fielding in that game four, which prevented a game five. He got on base nearly half the time, 471 for his average, and he drew four walks. So he's getting on base one way or the other. Uh, he's, he's definitely a guy to kind of look forward to in this Can-Am League final. And as you're going to see in a minute, uh, <laughs> he does show up. Ryan Newell, also a guy, he only pitched two innings, but he only walked one guy. He struck three out, did not allow a single earned run there. So kind of looking at the... Looking forward to the final there. The Miners are coming in in the very best shape they could be in. And if you're a Miners fan, that's something you've got to be happy about. Now, when we break down these past three games, we're going to see if that holds true or not. However, we'll get to that in a minute. we got to recount the Jackals first. So, in your Get Jacked review, the Jackals went 48-46. and 46, A noticeable drop-off from the Miners there. Uh, seeing as the Jackals were just two games above 500, they finished third in the league and drew a first-round matchup in the province of Quebec with three rivers. We'll talk about that series in just a minute, though, as they averaged uh, just a hair under uh, 1,750 fans, 1,742 fans on average per game for them. Uh, they missed the playoffs last year after a disappointing stretch in the middle part of the season, and then they just weren't able to get everything going on that last week of the season. Things didn't roll in their favor, and they lost a couple of key games in Ottawa that sealed their fate. Um, so that snapped their nine-year playoff streak. They had made the playoffs nine years consecutively from there. However, they do return this year, and they look to capture their first Can-Am League title. I'm sure you've seen that bandied about the... Uh, internet there that they have yet to win in the Can-Am League. They won the Northeast League and the Northern League, but yet to win in the Can-Am, and now they are very close to doing so. They lost the championship, though, five times. They lost it five years in a row, actually, from 2011 to 2015. Three in a row to Quebec, then to Rockland, and three rivers from there. So, not exactly great for them. 
unfortunately for them. They've always kind of been the bridesmaid, never the bride. They come in with some good pitching to try and change that. Five guys with ERAs below four, and as opposed to Sussex, only two of them are starters. The, the two stars would be Eduard Reyes and Brandon Butler. Uh, both guys had ERAs below four. Reyes with a 371, Butler with a 355. Each drew about 105 innings. Uh, Reyes 106 and two-thirds. Butler 101.1 innings for him. However, the bullpen was really the area where they had three really reliable guys. Uh, Matt Vogel, 386 for him in 51 innings. Uh, Reese Carlius, 325 and 55. And Dylan Brammer, the closer, he had the ERA of 129 in 42 innings for him. So a solid, solid bullpen there between those three guys here. So far, those guys have really made an impact, uh, with the exception of Vogel. He really hasn't seen much time in the postseason yet. However, I'm looking to see that change in the near future. In any case, let's take a look at the batters. Four guys with batting averages above 300s for them. Uh, Marte, 311. Conrad Gregor, 322. Jay Gonzalez, 310. And Santiago Chirino, 308. This is the best batting team in the Can-Am League, just straight out. They have five guys with a total bases of above 90 and 75 plus hits. Marte again, Gregor again, Jay Gonzalez, Santiago Torino, Richard Stock. All those guys have, roughly speaking, uh, well over 100 hits. Uh, Gregor, one, uh, 105, Marte, 109. As far as total bases, Marte 186, Gregor 168, Stock 130. These guys are just, they find ways to get on base. They're, they're dominant hitters. They had 17 total intentional walks as a team that led the Can-Am League. They led the league in batting average and in hits. Team batting average 178 and total hits 860. They were just a dominant hitting team. They can explode on uh, on the pitching side of things. They tend to implode a little bit, as we saw in this postseason. However, the batting can normally bail them out. So let's take a look at their postseason up to this point, and then we'll break down the Garden State Classic, as I'm calling it. The Jackals defeated the Tuavia Egal in five games, so they went the distance. A 3-0 victory from uh, Brendan Butler, a 0-5 loss with Eduardo Reyes on the mound. Then Brantley came out, got a 7-2 win. He keeps his ERA at zero in that one. So another guy with zero on the ERA sheet there. He pulled out a win in game three. Game four did not go their way. Landy Castile had a terrible start, and the team wound up losing 4-17. to But then Reese Carlius got the win in extra innings after a really a group start. That started with uh, Tessator, that I believe went to Dallas, then went to Carlius. That resulted in a 4-3 victory. Carlius pitched four innings there. Tessator gave him four, and I believe it was Vogel that gave him one in between there. Uh, Carlius snatched the victory in the 10th after a big walk-off win. 4-3, they advanced to the final just uh, moments before the Miners would do the same. So, key players in that series against uh, the Agals. Reese Carlius threw six and two-thirds innings. A 1-0 record, a 2-10 ERA with 13 strikeouts. He had a tremendous, uh, just tremendous effort in that series. And you look for more of the same going forward. Dylan Brammer pitched uh, three and a third innings. He also did very well there. An ERA of zero, two saves, and four strikeouts. And as far as batting went, Nelson Ward was the surprising guy. 
He batted 438 with seven hits and one walk. So he knows how to get on base, and he was doing very well there. He was also doing very well in the field. So now we shift to the matter of attention here, the Garden State Classic, the thing you've all came here to hear about. This is our first All-Jersey Final since 2008, and that was in the Atlantic League. Uh, when we saw the Patriots take on the River Sharks, Patriots took that one. They only lost one game. I believe it went five games in total. This is the first ever in the Can-Am League that we will see a interstate or interprovincial final. Uh, along the second time, we've seen a playoff matchup with two teams in the, the same state. Um, the last time that happened was 2010. This is the first time these teams have ever met in the postseason as well. And as of late, the Miners have dominated this matchup. Uh, 17, 11 and 7 this year against New Jersey. <coughs> and 47 and 45 all time. 24 and 12 in the past two years, if you want to go back that far. So it's really not been going the Jackals' way. However, they came into this series looking to change that. This is the Jackals' sixth appearance in the league championship, the Miners' second. Um, no, no surprise here. Jackals are a good batting team. Miners are good at pitching. They're like fire and ice. We're trying to find out who's going to be better. Fire or Ice. Breaking down the games that we've already seen so far before we talk about Game 4. Game 1, 3-2 Jackals and 10. Uh, again, these guys, they know how to get the job done. They don't have a quit attitude, as you would say. There was a pitcher's duel, really, to start this game. Um, fairly identical stat lines. Butler and Duncan each went 7-2 and two thirds. They each allowed two runs, and they each walked one guy. Only difference is Butler only surrendered four hits to Duncan's eight and only had one earned run to Duncan's two earned runs. Butler also struck out nine as opposed to six from Duncan. So, fairly identical stat lines. Uh, Bullpen-wise, both bullpens were on fire. Uh, the Jackal bullpen, they got the win, and uh, they went two and two-thirds, two hits, four Ks, and no walks. That's essentially Carlius's stat line as Brammer came in, faced one batter, and they got hit in the lake with a line drive and had to be removed from the game. So, Reese Carlius only had about two days, less than 24 hours, after throwing four innings in Canada, goes out and throws another two and two-thirds innings and secures the win for the Jackals. A gutsy performance for Reese so far, and he's looked just sheer dominant in this postseason up to this point. And he's just been, that's going to be a theme you see in games going forward. Reese Carlius is by far the best pitcher on either side in the postseason at, at this point. Uh, as for the minor bullpen, two and a third innings, they didn't quite get to go as far. Uh, no hits, one earned run, and three walks for them, four Ks. And that the way that game ended was less than ideal. Uh, that tenth inning was like a tenth inning out of hell as far as the minors are concerned. They walked two guys. Manny Sackfly moved them over. They were nearly on the verge of getting out of there. They got another out. And then a wild pitch brought in Demetrius Moore. And that's how that ended. A really rough way to end it. Really not exactly an ideal way for that to go. Kevin Grendel gets tagged with the loss after he, well, walked two of the guys that got on. He really was not happy with that strike zone, and it showed. And unfortunately, Ryan Newell couldn't bail him out, and... The win goes to Carlius. Player of the game is certainly Reese Carlius. Kevin Grandel, unfortunately, just threw a short straw. There really was no defining moment in that game outside the 10th inning. 
And I gotta say, that was one game where I, you look back at it and the Miners beat themselves. There's no other way of putting it. The Miners simply beat themselves. They walked those guys on there, they threw that wild pitch, and up until that point, it was neck and neck, and they gave the Jackals the opportunity they needed, and they took full advantage of it. As far as batting went, really only three guys are worth mentioning. Everybody else did very poorly on the batting side, which is what you expect in a pitcher's duel. Uh, Nelson Ward for the for the Jackals got a walk and a run score, two for three for him. Uh, Gavin Stupinski, he went two for three as well with a double. And Cito Culver, a walk, a run scored. He was caught stealing once, two for three for him. But all in all, it's a, it was a solid day for Stupinski, uh, I gotta say. So he was, he was doing very good on that front. As we shift now to game two, that was Wednesday night. The Miners answered back big. 12 to three big to tie up the series. Tom Burns answered back huge. A seven inning, six hits, one run, five walks, three Ks. Yeah. Tom Burns said not another bad start and he gave his team the start they needed. Really outside of a believe fourth inning mishap where he loaded the bases but the Jackets weren't able to do anything with it. He looked sheer dumb. Just not touchable. The Jackets couldn't really do anything. You only score one run really off of him, that's going to be dominant. That's just how that works. Looking forward to seeing just a sheer down performance from uh, Tom Burns. Unfortunately, you can't say the same about Reyes, who man, was just not good from the get-go. Five innings, nine hits, eight runs, all earned. Five walks, four Ks. The only positive to say about the star is that he hung around for five innings. And then uh, Aletta and Perez came in and pitched the rest of the way. They got hit pretty good, too. Four end runs for them on six hits and one walk. They struck out two, but the bullpen really kind of imploded. And you saw the limitations of that Jackal bullpen right there. It's not good outside of, really, Matt Dallas, Matt Vogel, Reese Carlius, and Dylan Brammer. Those are really your four guys. And it's clear why they used those two guys. Uh, they wanted to save the, the arms they could really depend on. Why burn the other arms, especially Carlius, who's thrown a lot of innings in a, a very, very short amount of time. I mean, in about a week's time, the man threw about 10 innings. As a reliever, that's that's a lot, a lot of innings to throw. I mean, just going from Sunday on, he threw over six innings from Sunday to Wednesday. So that's, that's an awful lot. And throwing two innings the day before, too, doesn't really help either. So you understand why they use those guys. Minor and bullpen was really the only weak spot, Jeff Thompson, but he really didn't pitch for over a week's time at that point, so I don't really hold that against him all too much. Uh, he allowed two hits, two runs, both earned a walk and a, and a strike out in the two innings for him. Uh, Alfredo Marte had a good game. That was about all you could say on the Jackland. Two for four. He drove in uh, two RBIs, and he drew a walk. Stock went two for five as well. And that was about all she wrote. Also, Nelson Ward, he did get on base a handful of times, and he stole two bases, so good for Wardy, but that's about all you could say there. On the flip side, though, the Miners went and just were utterly dominant. Uh, Breland Almondova, two for three. Mikey Reynolds, two for three. CJ Rutherford, three for five. Cito Cole for three for five. Jose Brizuela, three for five. Amongst them, you have uh, two walks to Almondova, he drove in two runs. Mikey Reynolds with a pair of home runs, he drove in five runs and drew a walk. Uh, Rutherford, he just scored a run. Uh, Brizuela, a double and a home run. 
and Culver a double and two runs scored. So he was just, uh, from the offensive standpoint, they were all just pretty dominant. There was really no bad, uh, bad batter in the lineup for Sussex that night. Reyes just imploding from guy number one. And yeah, everything we've said so far is really the way it went. Burns was sharp. The Jackals had one real opportunity, and at that point, when they didn't get those runners across, and it was the third and not the fourth, when they had the bases loaded and only went away, when they squandered that, from that moment on, it seemed like they were just kind of done. Uh, also, with a small crowd of only about 500, Yogi Berra, it's hard to really get any sort of energy going. If you're the team there, you look out, the crowd's mostly minor fans. At your own home ballpark, you're getting blown out. It's not really the kind of situation you want to be in there. Uh, and it showed it just kind of looked way overmatched. Uh, also, the Jackals left 10 guys on, so it's not even a matter of they just weren't getting guys on. I mean, Burns walked five guys, but so they had that chance, just couldn't drive in runs. And it, 10 guys on means nothing if they don't come home. So, the Miners showed that they could definitely rebound. Tom Burns gets a big win. Eduardo Reyes again struggles. This is his fourth or fifth straight start where he's really not had a good start. And Mikey Reynolds is clearly the player of the game. Although before you move on to game three, I will say though, Joe Stegner, he had a very bad strike zone. He was calling things that were in the opposite box strikes. Things that were in the dirt were strikes. Things that were over the plate were balls. It just, it was a very inconsistent strike zone. Reyes wasn't happy with it. Uh, Santiago Torino was really upset with it. Um, and really, even the miners, despite being up by as many as they were, they were even looking at the strikes and like, this is not how a strike center should be called. And hopefully he does not have to uh, call any more games. As If he calls that game, I think he'd be up for game five. If he's up for game five, God help us. But I really, I really don't want to see him behind home plate again this year. I'm kind of done with that. Uh, and funny enough, we go from what was the worst called game to what was, in my opinion, the best called game in game three. Uh, Tim McCaffrey was behind home plate. He called a fairly good strike zone. There were some minor fans there that didn't like it because he was squeezing the Myers a little bit. But he was doing the same thing to the Jackals too. There was three or four pitches that looked like they should have been strikes that weren't. And a couple of strikes that were real borderline calls, but... I give Timmy the benefit of the doubt there. He's been a very good umpire to this point, and he proved that on Friday night. Uh, the matchup we saw was Justin Brantley. He was 1-0 with a 0 ERA in 6 innings of work. 10 Ks, 5 walks for him in his lone playoff appearance. There's Andrew Gist, who we just covered, who went 7 strong, striking out 7, no walks, and 2 earned runs there. And it was the pitcher's duel that we all thought it was. 2 runs the whole way. Harris, the only guy to bring in runs, a two-run shot for him, scoring Alfredo Marte, and it, it was just locked in from there. Uh, both guys walked their fair share, but Brantley's stuff just couldn't be touched. Uh, big takeaway from that one is the Miners could not convert on opportunities. The Jackals were lending them in. Brantley had one inning where I believe the bases were loaded, couldn't do anything with it. Then when they brought in Carlius, he struggled in his second inning of relief, I believe it was the eighth, where he had two guys on and only one away, and they got out of it. And then in the ninth, when Brammer came on, again, two guys on, one out, ball hit right at Nelson Ward, who then threw right on the first, easy double play ball to end the game. All in all, it was just, their offense couldn't do anything. 
Uh, until Brantley came out, Medeiros was the only minor with a hit. He had both hits for the team. It just seemed like the Genicals were giving them this game, and they just could not take advantage of it. And that's, that's something that you can't do. If you want to win games, you got to score runs when the opportunity arises, and they just couldn't do it. It seemed like they were getting way too frustrated by not getting hits, and you're seeing that as seemingly every guy would get PO'd after he would strike out or pop out or whatever, and he'd slam his bat down, throw his helmet into the clubhouse. It just, it was a very, you just saw that they weren't getting along on that front. And it, you saw the frustration kind of boil over, and it shows to me how Bobby Jones runs his room, that he is really the kind of guy that gets everybody together and calms them down, and when he's not able to do that, how frustrated they get. Now, I grant you, you know, having two hits through seven innings, or through six innings, rather, is not exactly a, uh, a great starting point. It is going to be frustrating as hell to you. But still, you got to keep your composure about it. You can't let that get to your head, and when it does, those are the results you're going to get. On the flip side, though, for the Jackals there, uh, Nelson Ward is something else. The dude, in addition to being a great, uh, a great batter, is a tremendous fielder. He had one leaping play that saved a double and got them out of a jam, and then the double play ball really was something else. So Nelson Ward is a terrific, terrific guy. He's a terrific ball player there. So as far as Game 3 goes, the pitcher's duel we wanted and the pitcher's duel we expected was exactly what we got. And with that being said, let's move now to Game 4, which is tonight. Lendy Castile is the guy we know is going to go for New Jersey. David Palladino is the guy that I'm kind of going to guess is going to be going for uh, for Sussex. He went in Game 4 for them last week. I am, He pitched right after Andrew Gist went, so I would imagine they're going to keep with convention and run Palladino out there, who had a terrific start against Rockland. Seven innings, seven Ks, one walk. Exactly what you need. I'm looking for this to be more of a repeat of Game 2. Castile struggled, and it's really not giving me a reason to believe he's not going to struggle again. And going off of that logic, you have another really solid pitcher on the mound. Unless Paladino has a bad start, I don't see any reason why uh, the Miners don't take Game 4 tonight. However, it's baseball, anything can happen, and we're going to be live tweeting the whole thing. So you, if you tune into the at Ball Pod uh, Twitter, you'll know how it goes. But it'll be a good game to watch, and hopefully, hopefully we'll have a Game 5. I'm kind of rooting for that Game 5, because it extends the season, and that's what we want to see. And then hopefully just a good Game 5. And also the home plate umpire for tonight's game should be Jorge Tehran. That being said, there's two other things that we really want to cover here. The news here that came out of the Can-Am League just a few days ago, I believe three days ago at this time, uh, the Ottawa Champion Sale. Uh, Ottawa's kind of been a team that we've known trying to sell for a while now. It was one of the first things we reported on in, like, week two. And then when the whole problem in June came along with the whole lease being terminated deal, uh, it was just confirming what we already knew. Miles Wolf wants out of this situation. I'm sure forfeiting uh, $100,000 in a letter of credit is a good uh, motivator to get rid of it quicker. And uh, it certainly seems that way, as he's trying to sell, and it's sounding very urgently like he needs to sell. As he said, I really have to, as uh, to quote Wolf himself from the article from the Ottawa Citizen, again, links to everything we discussed, they're in the show notes, 
that are on the website, IndieBallReport.com, under the show notes heading. Uh, Wolf says, I really have to have it sold in the next week, in the next two or three weeks. This is it. It sounds an awful lot, and he does say it's part of the scheduling for the Canham League. They need to know, are you in or are you out? And it sounds like, well, can't really afford to run this team, even under the new agreement and to pay back the debt and everything. However, do not despair. There are a couple of ownership groups that are really, really interested in this proposal, that are really interested in buying the team. However, the problem is when you buy the team, you're really buying the debt along with it. You're going to be $302,000, or $100,000 in debt. Uh, being three hundred k in the hole, that's U.S. money. It's a bit higher with the Canadian dollar, but I converted it down. Uh, you're going to be taking out a lot of debt there. You're going to have to pay back. So off the bat, you're not going to pay a lot for this team. I'm not even sure really what the going rate for an independent league baseball team is, but... I gotta imagine you slash that in half because you're taking on that much debt with it. Uh, the cost from game with the new kind of agreement they have in place went from nine a game to three a game. That's in thousands there. But man, just this situation's getting awfully muddy. It's sad to see too because Ottawa does draw a decent enough crowd, and even more than that, the ballpark's nice. The team's there. Even the mayor of Ottawa, Jim Watson, said that they really have never been given a fair shot. The way that it's kind of been, it's hard to get to the ballpark. The light rail was never set up to its full extent. And that really hampers them because it's hard to get to the ballpark. And it, it really is not a great situation uh, to be in there. However, they do, they do need this done within the next three weeks. Wolf is Hopeful that will get done, but we've said on the show before, being hopeful only gets you so far. More than that, though, the, the hang-up they're going to have is the council wants a new lease before a 2020 season. So, off the bat, if you buy this team, let's say it gets done on October 1st for the sake of making it easy. A sale gets done October 1st. From October 1st until the start of the season, so we'll call it uh, May 15th. In this time frame, you're going to have to get a new lease done, schedule everything with the league, come up with a plan to pay back $302,000 in debt over the course of that lease, and then put together your team, which probably involves throwing out some of the guys that are already there and bringing in your own guys, because that's just what you do when you take over something. Typically, you want to bring in your own guys, or you look at it, why did they have to sell? It wasn't doing good. Let's remove some pieces here and see if we can't get new guys in that know what they're doing. So you're going to have to do that all behind the scenes. Not to mention now, you're also going to have to figure out how to run the stadium in such a way that you don't take on any more debt and that you start trying to claw your way back so you could afford to make a difference later on down the line. And you're going to have to field essentially a brand new team because that's independent league baseball. You really only have a handful of carryovers from any given year. You're going to have to do all of this in about about a six month period. That's a lot to do in six months. It's not really an enviable thing to do in that time frame. And you're going to be doing all of this and mainly the least bit with a city council that's pretty divided on whether or not they even want you there. 
Watson wants him there. However, he's not going to say, you know, these current tenants we have, they need to get gone. You're not going to say that. Um, I also kind of got the sense that Wolf and the city of Ottawa don't really get along too good. There's some quotes in there that make it sound like it's a very, very shaky relationship that the council has with Wolf and the Can-Am League in general. Uh, you can see in the article, but one of them says uh, they don't understand why they went with the Can-Am as opposed to an affiliated team. Apparently it was cheaper, but that was the only reasoning why there. It just it seems like a very clunky situation, a very, very awkward fit at the moment. However, before we wrap this thing up real quick, I just want to kind of go through what this proposal that was submitted to the city council was. It's going to be voted on on the 25th of September, so in a couple of weeks when we come back to the show, we'll be able to kind of talk about how this went. And this is what uh, they want in the lease. The council, if the proposal passes, will want a review of the new ownership's finances. Reasonable demand. You don't want another situation where you have an ownership group that can't really afford to keep the team, and then you're desperate to get someone that can. I understand that one. That's fine. In business decisions like this, it's uh, it's not that uncommon. A seven to ten year lease, so it would run from either 2020 to 2027 or 2030. Fair enough, that's fine. Here's where the issue comes. Identify more uses for the stadium. Fine. But, it, I imagine that would include taking prime dates, which would hurt the team. And the big killer, allow the city to partially redevelop the stadium land after LRT is fully in. So once the light rail transit's fully installed, they're going to want to take part of the stadium property in order to do other things with it. That sounds an awful, awful, awful lot. Like they're saying, we're going to slowly take this land from you to make this baseball situation not work. That way, in 7 to 10 years, which is roughly what we expect it's going to take for us to build the stuff we want to build and get it up and running good, we can then proceed to tear down this stadium and redevelop that land, or if Montreal has a baseball team again, or the Blue Jays want a new team that's closer by, we could go and say, look, we have this open stadium now, you can come right on in. But a minor league team here, we'll fix it all up for you. It seems an awful lot like that's what this whole proposal is setting up. It seems rather unfair inherently. So that's something I, I want to keep an eye on that situation, but I just kind of want to bring that to the surface. I'm very skeptical of the proposal that was made, and I'm very skeptical just kind of in general of this whole whole business. But, uh, yeah, we're running long now, and I'm running short on storage from Podomatic, so I'm not going to announce the thing that I was planning on announcing, but let it be known if you go to the polls tab, you'll see it there. And we'll go into the full depths of it next week when we're really just talking about reviewing stuff. But uh, just go to the poll tab on the website there. So I'm going to plug quickly and get out of here so we can edit this and get this thing up here. Hopefully by first pitch. So you should be following us online at IndieBallPod on Twitter. on At IndieBallReport on Instagram. You can find us on our website also. At IndieBallReport.com, all the articles, episodes, videos, and any content that we produce is up on that website as well. You can follow the show on iTunes, Spotify, 
TuneIn, Stitcher, and for the time being, Podomatic, but we should be migrating off of there in the next week or so. So don't subscribe on Podomatic. Subscribe on the other ones. It'll be a lot easier for you. Trust me on this one. Uh, outside of that, I think that's all we have to plug. So, until we speak again, keep digging, get jacked, and don't forget to play ball.